Good afternoon, and thank you so much for your patience today, and thank you for joining us. My name is Sharika McCarthy, and I'd like to welcome you to our webinar, The Choices and the Details, Medication Options for ADHD. Today's webinar is part of CHAD's National Resource Center on ADHD, Ask the Expert series. The NRC is funded by the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention and provides reliable science-based information about current medical research in ADHD management. It is a pleasure to introduce today's expert, Dr. Max Witznitzer. Witznitzer is a pediatric neurologist in the neurology, neurology department of the University Hospitals Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. I'd like to thank you for joining us again, and here's Max. Thank you, everyone, for coming, and I appreciate the picture of me when I look much younger, and I had actually hair that was not uh, gray in color. Uh, the talk today is, is going to be on uh, how to basically uh, analyze and assess the issue of medications, when medication is indicated for the management of ADHD, and which medication options are there. Uh, for anyone who wishes to know, my only conflict of interest is that I'm on the board of directors for CHAD, and I'm the co-chairman of the professional advisory board for, the, uh, for CHAD. Uh, Let's first go look at what we need to do in order to effectively manage ADHD. Unlike what many people will believe, it's not something as simple as throwing medication at a child and then saying, this fixes it. There has to basically be participation, not only of the patient, whether the patient is a child or an adult, but of the family members of the, of the, uh, of the patient, as well as individuals in the school or work envi environment and the clinicians in plural who are helping with the management, whether it would be a medical professional, a psychology professional, a speech professional, or an educational professional, just to give you some examples of individuals who are involved. And when you do do the intervention, it's not something as simple as give me a pill and make it go away because that's not what happens in ADHD. Medication can help ameliorate or lessen the severity of the symptoms and signs of ADHD, but it does not teach the individual how to manage behavior or how to manage learning or work behaviors. And as a consequence, we have to make sure we have a good, when needed, behavior management plan, which basically means to learn the skills you need to function in society appropriately, as well as a good educational plan, educational meaning not only for the school environment, but basically education, whether it would be at work or life in general. Uh, as uh, someone has said to me in the past, uh, it, it's not just pills, it's also skills. Now, before we go to the issue of which medicines might be effective for home, one of the things that we have to look at here is the evidence for the effectiveness of the use of medication for the management of ADHD. Everyone always refers to this one study, which I'll be talking about, which is the multimodal treatment study of children with ADHD, which is a mouthful, we all call it the MTA. And it was almost 600 children at six sites in the early school age years, between seven and 10 years of age, who were either treated with a well 
defined and focused medication regimen or a very well-defined and focused educational and behavioral medication, behavioral management regimen, or both medication as well as the behavioral regimen, or we just sent back to the primary care providers, the physicians who normally care for them, and said, manage them as you normally would. And it was found that at 14 months, all the children, these were all children, showed improvement, but the ones who showed the most improvement were the ones who basically got the more intense focused therapy for ADHD, being on medication as well as being on the combined regimen. And the studies, when you broke down the data, it showed medication was most effective for the core symptoms of ADHD, the inattention, the hyperactivity, and the impulsivity, while educational behavioral strategies helped take that focus and decreased impulsivity and channel it into good learning and good behavior. By 24 months of age, after they really stopped a lot of the intensive intervention, the effects diminished, and by about eight years of age, eight years after the study started, the effect no longer could be differentiated between any of the study groups whatsoever. What this tells us is that you have to continue with the intervention the way it should be going, not like what was done in this study where they basically stopped the intensive educational intervention, they stopped the intensive behavioral intervention uh, within the first year after the individuals were enrolled, and the intensive medical management was not necessarily followed through for that time period. Other studies have also shown positive effects. There are, there are similar data, there are similar data from the preschool ADHD treatment study or the PATH study where they took children between three and five and a half years of age, treated them, and they found that about half the children could be managed without medication, just with a good solid behavioral management strategy. But the ones who were treated showed improvements in functioning, but the improvement was not as robust, was not as strong as we would see in the older population, telling us that when you're dealing with brains of different ages, you may not necessarily always get the same response because there may be differences in maturity of receptors, differences in maturity of the mechanisms by which the medications are absorbed as well as processed in the body. But the bottom line was it helped uh, but you had to know exactly what you were doing there. So now let's look at the treatment options that we have. When you look at the medications that are traditionally used for the management of ADHD, there are the stimulant medications, the antidepressant medications, and what's called the adrenergic agonists. I will tell you what all these are in a little bit. In the stimulant family are names that everyone probably recognizes. Methylphenidate, which is also Ritalin, and it comes in two forms. For those of you who survived high school chemistry, methylphenidate is a racemic molecule, which means it has a left-handed isomer and a right-handed isomer. It's the same molecular const, uh, constituents, but they're organized in such a way that these molecules are mirror images of each other. And it's found that the right-handed molecule of methylphenidate or Ritalin seems to be the more effective one, so there's a separate drug that's called dextromethylphenidate or right-handed methylphenidate that people use. In the amphetamine family, there's also right-handed and left-handed forms. The right-handed form seems to work a little bit better, and therefore there's dextroamphetamine that people may have heard of. There's the mixed amphetamine salts, which is both the right-handed and left-handed molecules, as well as a prodrug called lisamphetamine, which is also known by the brand name of Vyvanse. There are different delivery systems for these. 
Some of these come as immediate release, which means it gets absorbed at one time, comes in, gets absorbed at one time, and usually has a shorter duration of existence within the body in terms of its effect, normally about four to six hours, dependent on the medication and the individual's biology. There are also sustained or extended release formulations that last longer periods of time, that are made to last eight, 12, and now even 16 hours uh, from the time that you take the medication. And one of the questions which I will answer later on is, how do you choose from this list which ones to, which ones to identify? Here's a small list, doesn't include everybody, a small list of some of the available stimulant medications on the market. In the immediate release categories and the extended or sustained release categories, there are quite a few choices here. It can be extremely confusing for people. The bottom line here is if you look at these medications, if you look at the methylphenidates, if you look at the amphetamines, for the most parts, they work about equally well, and they seem to have an effect in about 60 to 80% of individuals. Some individuals respond equally well to either one. Some preferentially respond better to one compared to the other. How we differentiate between the two groups is not that well defined at the present time, which really means you have to do trials of the medication in order to see what happens. But these are, these are some of the choices. There was a time when the generic equivalents for Concerta, which is methylphenidate extended release uh, preparation, uh, were found not to be exactly the same as the brand name itself or its generic equivalent. There's actually a generic that's derived from the brand name. Uh, there are, one of the products is now being more extensively field tested to basically answer the question of uh, whether it actually is truly bioequivalent, which means it mirrors the effects of concern. But that's the one out of this list that I wanted to make a comment about. Do not have to memorize this list. When we look at the stimulant medications, most of the side effects are usually transient in nature. One of the rules about the use of medications in the stimulant family is try to take them on a full stomach. If you take them on an empty stomach, you're more likely to get a headache, you're more likely to get upset stomach. There can be transient insomnia that occurs with these medications. Most of the time it wears away or goes away within one to two weeks. Also, appetite suppression is a known side effect as well as an effect of the medications in this family. For example, Adderall, before it was Adderall, and that's a brand name medication, was actually formulated as a diet, med as a diet pill before uh, it was converted into an ADHD medicine. So we know it does that. However, in the majority of children and adults who are treated with this, with this family of medications, we know that the effect on appetite tends to be transient. You may get a good six weeks, maybe three months of decreased appetite, but in the majority of individuals, the appetite comes back. The studies that have been done that have shown in part, uh, in, in, in part and in whole over time, you find that the weights remain stabilized. If these individuals are overweight, observations have shown that they tend to have a decrease in the amount of eating and their weight may go back more to where they were destined or they should have been to start with. Other side effects that occur is individuals can get very moody and irritable on the medication. Most of the time when this happens, it's because there's underlying anxiety that's been identified or not been identified that has been aggravated by the medicine. You can also aggravate underlying mood disorders, such as bipolar disorder, with this. So it's something that has to be identified. We have to differentiate between the moodiness and irritability that occurs as the medication effect diminishes four to six hours after you've taken it from the time that you took it 
initially. So if you take it and an hour or two later, you're moody and irritable, that's a different creature than if you're moody and irritable when, as the medicine's wearing off four hours later. The latter one can be managed and dealt with. The former one you need to address probably the reason why the mood disorder or the uh, anxiety disorder is there and, uh, and, and explore different treatment options. You can have picking behavior. It's been reported that the children have increased picking at sores, at cuticles, and things like this, something that has to be watched. There's a concern about abuse and diversion. I'll talk about that in a little bit. And also there's concerns about the, uh, about the appearance of ticks or growth suppression, and I'll talk about that in a slide towards the end. This, the second group of medications that people can consider using are medicines that are really within the antidepressant family. Why do I say this? Because atamoxetine or stratera, the one that people tradition, primarily use out of this family, is actually a failed antidepressant. It was trialed by the company, but not found to have a good effect, and only when it was repurposed into an ADHD medicine because of its mechanism of action, we knew that that basically was doing something. Now, when you look at the stimulant medications, the mechanism of action is predominantly on what's called a dopamine system. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter or a little chemical that helps the nerve cells talk to each other. And what these meta what methylphenidate and amphetamine products do is it increases the availability of dopamine to the appropriate nerves in the body that require them in order to improve attention, reduce impulsivity, and reduce distractibility. There's different ways that they can do it. One way they do it is to reduce the reuptake of dopamine once it's been excreted uh, from one nerve to the other. The other one is it actually, uh, amphetamine actually increases the amount that's put out into the space between nerves, nerve cells themselves. No matter what, it's predominantly a dopamine uh, mechanism. Atomoxetine, on the other hand, has a slightly different mechanism of action. It's thought to be a norepinephrine-based system, which is another nerve uh, a neurotransmitter or chemical that nerves use to talk to each other. And it works in, a, in slightly different areas in the brain, but it comes to the same point. Why is this important to say? Because there's different areas in the brain that are involved in attention. Some of them are more dopamine responsive, some of them are more norepinephrine responsive. If you work on these systems and enhance their functioning, you basically get an improvement in attention span. I've listed some of the older medicines that are also used. For instance, people used to use drugs like amipramine and nortriptyline, but for the most part, these are not the, uh, some of our first-line choices at the present time. Here's a little slide that basically tells you about atomoxetine or stratera. Unlike the stimulant medicines that have about a four, uh, the immediate release have about a four-hour duration of action, Atomoxetine really has an all-day effect. If you take it once a day or twice a day, it seems to last all day and through the next morning uh, if, it's, if, if the individual is responsive to it and dependent on the dosing, it comes as lots of different formulations and strengths. And while the blood levels of the medicine may change, more, uh, change quickly, the effect of the medicine, which is called the pharmacodynamic effect, the effect of the medicine seems to be sustained or persist for a longer period of time, suggesting that in the brain, it's lingering and hanging out and doing the job it's supposed to do, even though in the blood, the levels may be dropping. We do know with atomoxetine that individuals who are who break the medication down slowly, predominantly because of a certain breakdown factory, a group of workers called cytochrome 2D6, 
that with that, they're, they're slow metabolizers, you just have to ratchet the dose down. So if you're a slow metabolizer, you put you on the regular dose, you only become very sleepy. The fix there is very simple. You put them on a much lower dose, not make them sleepy, see what happens, uh, and follow them along uh, in that regard. From this group of medications, change in appetite, tiredness, dry mouth, irritability, uh, even constipation are known. In older individuals, the use of these medications sometimes may be more challenging because, especially in men over 40, there's an increased risk of urinary retention. The bottom line, what does that mean? You can't urinate. It's very difficult to get it out. Uh, and therefore, we have to consider that as, as uh, uh, when we prescribe our medications. There are potential side effects from the older tricyclic antidepressants, but not from atomoxetine. It's been reported that extremely rarely atomoxetine or stratera can cause uh, liver damage, and that's something that needs to be monitored and watched for. There are also potential concerns about psychiatric side effects where individuals get more irritable, more ornery, and more moody, uh, and sometimes more aggressive. If that happens, you stop the medicine and then call the doctor. Oops, sorry. The third group of medications are the adrenergic drugs. And the adrenergic drugs are basically clonidine and guanfacine, and they have an indirect effect on the norepinephrine system uh, in terms of what their mechanisms of action are. Clonidine comes as an immediate release preparation, which lasts a few hours, usually about four hours, or an extended release preparation that will last more, approximately about 12 hours uh, if, uh, if would do well. It also comes as a patch uh, that's used for a variety of, uh, of purposes, uh, blood pressure control, as well as potentially for ADHD. Guanfacine, which is a more focused uh, uh, adrenergic drug, especially specific specifically for the area at which it's supposed to be working, also comes as an immediate release medication that had a brand name of 10x, but now the generic is easily available, as well as an extended release known as Intunit. Guanfacine can be dosed two to three times a day if it's the immediate release. Intunib can be dosed once a day, uh, sometimes twice a day. That's very rare, uh, uh, but usually once a day if it's the extended release. The studies have been shown that these improve attention and they decrease the activity level. However, if you're looking for an immediate effect from these medications, only the stimulants will give you an immediate effect. The stimulants, methylphenidate, Ritalin, and amphetamine, the Adderall-type family, when you take the medicine, it either works or it doesn't. Atomoxetine and the adrenergic drugs can take weeks before you see the full effect. So you can't take the medicine today and expect to see the effect tomorrow. You have to basically be patient on how it's going to work. The adrenergic drugs also can help with mood stability. In individuals who are anxious, they can have a modest effect in dampening the anxiety. And clonidine, especially, is used to help children with ADHD go to sleep at night when they have difficulties winding down. The side effects are sedation, which means they can make you tired, and irritability. Some children get ornery. Another side effect that people have to be aware about, but it's not widely publicized, especially mainly for guanfacine, is it can increase appetite, and therefore you can have some weight gain. The other medications, atomoxetine and the stimulants, basically don't do that. But this one has the potential, and people have to be aware that that might happen. Now, there are treatment concerns. One thing that people would say to me is, tell me, Dr. Wisnitzer, which one seems to have the biggest bang for its buck, for the buck? 
which is which is basically the effect size of the medicine. If I, I'm not on the medicine and then I take the medicine, how great is the improvement that occurs, which is known as the effect size. And we know that stimulants have the greatest effect size, followed by atomoxetine and the adrenergic drugs, atomoxetine, clonidine, and guanfacine. Number two, people are concerned, can I take stimulant medications if I have or my child has seizures? In other words, if I'm going to be taking the medicine as an adult or a child's going to be taking it, but they have an underlying seizure disorder or epilepsy. And the research to date has shown that in the vast majority of individuals, there is no exacerbation of epilepsy. There's no exacerbation or worsening of the seizures and that there is no conflict uh, in that regard. Number three, there are concerns that if I take the medication, everyone probably heard stories about this, I take the medicine, it can bring out ticks. Now, it has to be looked at in much, much or greater nuance. Because these stimulant medicines have been studied in individuals with Tourette's syndrome, which is a chronic tick disorder, and it's been shown that they don't aggravate the tick disorder. The research work shows that placebo aggravated the ticks as often as the stimulant medicine did. About a, a fifth of the children in either group basically had a worsening, which basically means it's not the medication that always does it. But what can happen, and a mechanism by which you can see an increase in tick activity, is that if an individual has an underlying anxiety disorder and the stimulant aggravates the anxiety disorder, the increased anxiety can lead to increased ticks in individuals who are susceptible to ticks. In those circumstances, you either drop the dose of the stimulant medicine, or you, or number two, you try a different medicine such as atomoxetine, which has been shown to be functioning quite well in individuals with ticks, or a medication such as one of the adrenergic drugs, clonidine or guanfacine, or you treat the underlying anxiety disorder or tick disorder, and then re-explore the option of treating with a stimulant medicine. Those are, uh, those are some of the options that are available. It's a, a longer discussion of this can't be done because of what we're focusing on today. Do these medicines impact growth? The answer is yes. Some studies have shown that you can lose, for instance, a centimeter in height, which is about half an inch. Other studies have suggested larger losses, but didn't follow the individuals through puberty, because at the time of puberty, frequently we see a rebound in growth. And for the most part, if anything, there's a very small amount of, of, of loss of potential height. And that's in the theoretical. In the majority of individuals, that will not happen for those of us who've managed them long-term and monitored their growth over a long period of time. But it's something that people need to be aware of. If it has a sustained effect on appetite, any of the medicines that you're using, or if it seems to have an effect on growth, then we need to basically explore other options. If the individual has been growing well, for instance, on a stimulant medicine, and three years later seems to be having a problem with growth, you need to look for other reasons why that happens. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen early on. It is not going to happen years later. When uh, people are always concerned if a child or adult starts on a stimulant medicine, it's usually the stimulant. No one's concerned about atomoxetine. No one's concerned about guanfacine or clonidine. If it's a stimulant medicine, it's going to make them drug abusers. However, the research that's been done has told us the exact opposite. Either the medication does not increase the risk of substance use or drug abuse, or it actually decreases it. The most recent study that an uh, analysis that's been done suggests a decreased risk that all basically almost goes down to the baseline for individuals of that age. 
which really means uncontrolled ADHD and a subset of individuals can basically lead them on the wrong path and controlling the ADHD will help them develop the skills that they can follow the right path and avoid substance use. I talked a little bit about the potential for these medications to aggravate psychosis or mood, for especially bipolar disorder and anxiety disorder, and that's something that we have to watch for. It's rare you stop the medicine, the effects should disappear. There have been reports over the years that somehow these medications are related to death. And it's not the adrenergic drugs. It's not drugs like clonidine or guanfacine. It's not atomoxetine. Basically, people are worried about the stimulant medicines. However, large population studies have failed, have failed to confirm or support the initial concerns about increased sudden death in individuals who are treated with stimulant medicines. This has been studied for children. This has been studied for adults. In adults, they've even looked at, does it increase the risk of stroke? And basically, the answer was no. Does it increase the risk of heart attacks or heart disease in individuals who do not have unstable disorders affecting the heart? And the answer is no. If the, if the individual has an underlying heart problem to start with, it probably is prudent to get feedback from their cardiologist to say, is it okay to put them on a stimulant medicine or not? But on the, in the absence of, of situations like that, uh, the, concerns are, uh, the concerns about a massive increase in death because of these medications are unwarranted. They're not supported by the research work. Of course, questions have to be asked. Is there a family history of sudden death? Is there a family history of, of rhythm disturbances that could potentially be aggravated by certain medications? We need to always make sure we get a complete history before they get started on the medicine. People have also talked about the point whether you should put children or adults on drug holidays. It, they, basically, parents will say to me and have said to other individuals who manage these medications, we have to basically let these medicines flush out of their body. We have to not let them be on them all the time, things of this nature. Number one, the stimulant medicines, the way they're prescribed right now, basically wash out by the following morning. We know that because once the medication effect is gone, it is gone. The kids are, the kids are back to their baseline. The same effect we see in adults. So the issue is you don't really have to wash these medicines out of the body. Number two, I have some people who say to me, I want my child to eat better or not eat better. My child doesn't need it or my child does need it. And I think all this has to be looked at for what are the needs of the individual who is being treated. If the individual has significant behavioral issues that are ameliorated, are lessened, and, and better controlled when they're on the medication, then probably being on a drug holiday is not in, the, in that individual's greatest advantage. I remember a mother who brought her child to me once saying, the doctor wants him off the medicine over the summer, Something bad's going to happen to him. He's going to run to the street. He's going to get hit by a car. Some accident's going to happen. I can't have this. This mother was correct. This child needed to be on medicine whether he was in school or not. But there are other individuals who may not need it. So this is an individual choice that has to be made and the decision that has to be made with, with the support of the individual who's prescribing the medication. So how do you start it? In other words, what should you do? The first question we ask ourselves is, when do you need to be on medication? Does every individual with ADHD symptoms need to be on medicine? The answer is no. 
the teachings that we have are individuals with mild symptoms, even mild to moderate symptoms, try educational behavioral intervention as the first intervention, as the first treatment. An example is from the preschool study that was done that showed that when this kind of intervention was done, half the children had adequate control so they didn't need to be on medication. So that's, the, that's one thing that we have to ask ourselves. If there's the true concern for physical injury, running into the street without looking for cars, falling off the top of a building. By the way, children do, who are very impulsive can do things like climb onto the roof, hang out the window, and there can be risks that are there. For, adult, for children and adults, is there some impairment in relationships with others where basically you're antagonizing people around you, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a sibling, whether it's all the, all the children in your school? And that includes issues about interaction and socialization. When there is a failure in performance in work or at school that can be directly linked, directly linked to attention or impulse control problems. For example, if I have an individual who is requiring days to complete a project at work that only requires four hours, and that individual is at risk for losing the job and also at risk for developing poor self-esteem and perhaps secondary depression as a consequence of the untreated ADHD, then an, a treatment trial may be warranted for that individual. The same thing with children in their school performance. They're getting solid Ds and Fs and they should be an AB student. We need to say to ourselves, if the interventions that we're doing now aren't working, consider medication. If it disrupts your daily functioning, so that's really chaos in the home setting, chaos in the work setting, chaos in, uh, in, in, in multiple environments, if you get kicked out of multiple daycare centers, if you get kicked out of multiple babysitters, consider the use of a medication. Obviously, I already talked about inadequate effect. And also consider that ADHD medicine only treats ADHD symptoms. If an individual has anxiety disorder, if an individual has a mood disorder that are independent, if an individual has a tick disorder, if an individual has a learning disorder that are independent of ADHD, those also have to be managed in order to complete the package and get good care delivered. So let's look for some of our ideas. When you start a medication, you start with a low dose and you build it up slowly. The package insert for many of the medications uh, for instance, just as use an example would be um, concert, what used to be called concerted non-methylphenidate ER, says you can titrate it up on a weekly basis. Why does it say that? Because that's how the studies were done that were submitted to the FDA. Years ago, I polled a group of ADHD experts and asked how quickly can you, do you titrate your medicines? And they basically said to me, about every four days they may go up. It's enough time to let the body get used to the medicine before you go up again. And the second step you do is when you increase the medicine, go to maximal effect. Studies that have been done on teenagers using extended release preparations have shown that the biggest problem that people have is they don't increase the medicine up to the dose that they need. Another example is Concerta. Concerta comes as an 18, 27, 36, and 54 milligram tablet. The individuals may only get titrated up to the 54 milligram tablet, yet a dose of 72 milligrams, which is 236 milligram tablet, may be what they need. And it's been shown that at least a third of the individuals can get underdosed during adolescence in those studies. When it comes to medication choices, if you're looking for the biggest bang for your buck, unless there's a clinical reason not to do this, stimulants are your first line choice. 
atamoxetine and the adrenergic drugs, and you can see on the list here, if you're looking for an effect in the early morning and the late evening, and you could actually combine some of these medicines. Atamoxetine can be combined with the stimulus, but you first do monotherapy using one drug. If individuals don't respond to stimulants or have unacceptable side effects, if there's concerns about substance use where you do not want a stimulant in that home, or about aggravation of ticks, you go for the non-stimulant meds that are there. And obviously, you have to monitor and keep an eye out for potential side effects. How do you do this? By knowing what the side effects are. Luckily for us, when you pick up prescriptions at pharmacies, you get a list from the pharmacy of what the medications, uh, potential side effects are. Go through that list and learn it. When you choose a stimulant, make sure that you understand that most stimulants are basically equally effective. And what you want to know is how long do you want it to work? A mother said to me today, I can handle my child's behavior at home. I need a medicine for school, which means we need something that should last about eight hours. Other people may come in and say, his behavior is a major challenge no matter what. That child will need a, a medicine that should last most of the day, uh, or, or we will call the all-day effect that's there. We also have to make sure that when we choose a medication, we consider um, that they, uh, what are the medical conditions they have. Are there any other medicines that may or may not mix well with them? Yeah, or do they have uncontrolled seizures that we're afraid might affect them? Or hypertension that might be aggravated, especially for the adults? Those are questions. I've listed here some of the daily dosing ranges uh, for some of these medicines. These are loose numbers, uh, but these are the things that we normally aim for. So our goal is coverage throughout the day, getting a stable blood level. Since we know immediate release medicines may not be able to do it, many people will ultimately end up with extended release preparations. There's a cost issue here. Mother said to me today, I like my immediate release. I give it three times a day. It costs you much less than using an extended release. But everyone really has to make the choice that they're comfortable with in terms of how medicines work. So let's say, who would benefit from a medicine that lasts six to eight hours? A child who has, who has issues in school, but at home as well. There's no major homework issues. There's no behavioral issues. Probably in that case, you might choose this one. If you have individuals who can't swallow pills and you want to use a methylphenidate product, outside of the, of the uh, Daytrona patch, they come as eight-hour preparations for the most part. There's one or two 12-hours now that are available. Uh, but you might want to mix and match. And college students, sometimes we'll give them two doses of an eight-hour medicine in the morning and in the early afternoon to give you a 16-hour effect. There now is a 16-hour product for those of you who wish to know. It's called Mydayas, M-Y-D-A-Y-I-S. I love the name. Um, and, and it does have a 16-hour duration of action, and it's made for teenagers and, and adults. Who benefits from a 12-hour medicine? Everyone can read the dose, the regimen here. Homework and, 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 and behaviors at school and at home that have to be managed. Adults who want one daily dosing. Um, individuals, some of the that you might need for potentially lower abuse potential. It's not easy to abuse the extended release preparations. Uh, papers have been written, for instance, about, again, I'll go back to Concerta, where individuals trying to abuse Concerta, where they've opened the capsule up, taken out the gel on the inside and tried to snort it. They end up in the emergency room trying to re remove the, uh, the gelatin, that's the gel that's there. However, the goal here is for potential lower abuse, and if there really is a serious concern, you probably should go for atomoxetine or one of the adrenergic agents as your first choice in that regard. So at the bottom line, at the bottom line here, our goal of treatment is the control of ADHD features, 
We want to have good functioning during the daytime. Why? We want the children to develop. We want the children to develop good habits. They're good, they, we want the children to develop good habit behaviors. One of our goals for ADHD management is to avoid the development of bad habits. You avoid good habits, whether it's behavioral habits, learning habits, work habits, you do much better in that regard. If, if needed, treatment throughout the entire day is the optimal goal. It can be done by using one extended release product or using immediate release products that are put together. For instance, you can use the extended release guanfacine product or you can take guanfacine immediate release two or three times a day and achieve the same effect. You do get more consistent and more even effects if you use an extended release preparation, but we also need to know that medicine itself does not treat ADHD. It has to be used in conjunction with the appropriate educational, behavioral, and behavior management program. When I say behavior management, it's not only for the child, it's also for the adults that they can learn the appropriate skills, for instance, management of executive function difficulties and such. And I think we are done, and we have a few minutes for questions. I'm happy to uh, answer them. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Doug, for your presentation. We will be back after the break. Our first question is, are generic medications as suggested in Medicare two different things? The answer is yes. Uh, and a good example would be if we take immediate release methylphenidate, Ritalin, we take the Ritalin tablet and we take all the generic equivalents, they work just as well. If you look at uh, Adderall compared to the generic mixed amphetamine salts, uh, and whether you're looking at the tablets or you're looking at the capsules which are the extended release, they basically have very similar effects and profiles. It's, it's so, I would, I would tell folks that Using the generic is, an, is acceptable and it tends to be cost-saving in nature. Now, there are some medication preparations for which only brand name is available. Some of the newer uh, stimulant medications fall into that family, in which there is no generic equivalent that can be used. But I, I would tell folks that if they're given the option of the generic formulation or the brand name formulation or something, try the generic first uh, and see what it does because it tends to work well for most individuals, the vast majority of individuals, and it tends to cost you less. The simple way to tell if the medication effect is, do, is, 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 a, is the proper dose, is it doing what you want it to do? In other words, is the school performance where the, it should be for, for that child? Is the child doing much better with peer relations? Is the child's behavior at home what we would normally expect within limits in that regard? That's really the bottom line. People have proffered, and, and by the way, there's ways of, of, of monitoring this. When you first have children who are evaluated for ADHD, we usually fill out rating scales, uh, little sheets that get filled out that scores them for their ADHD symptoms. You can then have an abbreviated rating scale list that then gets filled out after on the medication to see have they now fallen out of the symptomatic range and fallen more into the range that we would typically expect children to be. 
we have to remember that a 30 to 50% improvement in functioning is usually what you get from the medication. So if an individual is severely symptomatic with ADHD, 30 to 50% means they may still be symptomatic, but they're going to be better. In those circumstances, we frequently put medications together. Also, we have to remember that when we use these medications, again, usually the stimulant medicines, normally the stimulant medicines kick in within about 30 to 45 minutes after you've taken them. The, the, the Detrona patch, which is the, the methylphenidate patch, may take a bit longer to kick in, but it also has uh, different, different effects and different benefits that for some children are very good. For instance, those who can't swallow pills um, or that you're concerned about uh, some of the compliance that might be there. But for the most part, the stimulant medicines should kick in within 30 to 45 minutes after you've taken the medication. I've already told you about atomoxetine and about clonidine and guanfacine, that when the effect is going to kick in, it should be a stable effect, but it may take weeks to see, the three, three to six weeks to see the full effect of how the medication works, and that should last throughout the majority of the day, so it should be a stable effect throughout the day. Next. In the minority of individuals, medications have to be tried. Not in the majority, in the minority. And it and the risk that's there is more of, we'll call it side effect risks. And the side effect risk I'm talking about is you might have some sedation or, 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 or effects of that kind. Sometimes it can cause some irritability. It's clearly beneficial. Research studies that have been done have shown that a stimulant plus atomoxetine can be better than either two in isolation. A stimulant plus guanfacine or clonidine are, uh, can be better than either in, uh, in isolation because remember, the stimulants and the other and the members of the other family have different mechanisms of action, and sometimes you need to combine different mechanisms of action in order to get a better effect for improving the functioning for the individual. The bottom line goal of our therapy is to basically improve function. It's not to cure, but to make the individuals functional so they can learn the right skills. That's what you're aiming for. Next. That is a, that is a question that is on everyone's lips. And just coincidentally, I came from a meeting where this was discussed. The, the, my, my simple answer for you is no. Unless you've got concerns, for instance, that you're a slow metabolizer for certain enzyme systems, like I mentioned before with atomoxetine and the 2D6 system. But for the, for the, for the most part, the use of the genetic testing, is, uh, uh, the pharmacogenomic testing, which is really what was being asked, is not in its full mature state. There's a lot more enzyme systems that are involved that we don't know, that we don't test for. Sometimes the results that they publish and they give you may not be so good. For instance, I was reviewing a test result on one of my patients yesterday, a test that someone else had done, and I told the parents, look at this one. This one says that maybe it's in the red zone. And they said, but that's the medicine that works for our kid the best. And I said, exactly. The genetic testing can only give you some information about how fast the medications may be metabolized or broken down by the body, but it doesn't going to tell you what, how they're going to work. Secondly, you have to remember that it's not only 
the, the how the body handles the medicine that is going to be the factor that influences how a medicine works. There's also issues such as other conditions, the comorbid disorders. Is there a coexisting anxiety disorder? Is there a coexisting mood disorder? Things of this nature that have to be taken into effect. I would argue that for the regular individual, the genetic testing probably has limited if no, and or no value. For more complicated cases where questions really have, haven't been answered and we're not quite sure why they're not responding to the medication the way they are, getting that testing done and interpret it by someone who knows what they're talking about would be a valid uh, um, move. Next. When you're talking about stimulant medications, you, and, and as well as some of these other meds, but let me stick with the stimulants because we have the most data for the stimulant medications for the methylphenidate, the Ritalin, and the amphetamine, the Adderall-type drugs. There's only three, there's actually maybe three, four reasons why the medications may, quotation marks, stop working. One is you've outgrown the dose, so you need a higher dose for that individual. Number two is the medicine isn't being taken. In the MTA study, when they tested the children to see if they were being getting the medication regularly and compliant, it turns out there was a sizable minority who never, re, who never had measurable levels of the medication in their body, even though families said they were giving it. So, so we have to either, we have to look at it that they've outgrown the dose, they're not taking the medicine, or there's something else going on. There's another condition that's present that's affecting the behavior, making them look like their ADHD is worse. They may have a coexisting mood disorder. They may have coexisting anxiety disorder. Uh, perhaps the, the, the individual is abusing drugs and we're seeing the effects of drug abuse. Uh, the child may have an underlying sleep disorder and therefore not getting a good night's sleep. You're going to look terrible. Your attention span is going to be bad. The medicine will only get you so far. So we have to ask ourselves those questions. But the medicine doesn't stop working. We have to ask ourselves the question, why is this happening? Next. You know, it's, well, first of all, a six-year-old child, it, they're not too young because we have to ask ourselves the question, what happens if you do not treat? Let me give an example for you. Uh, we know that in some children with reading difficulties in ADHD, that if you put them on medication for their ADHD, reading improves. But it doesn't happen if you put them on the medicine after the fourth grade. There's this open window of time in which the reading can improve. Uh, the same thing for math. If you don't learn your math fundamentals because you're not paying attention, you may be behind the eight ball for years in learning math. So there's no such thing as too young. The real more important question is, does the child need to be on medicine? Are they, having, are they struggling in school? Are they struggling with peer relations? Is the family fed up with the baby? A mom said to me today, the, uh, the kids and my husband are driving me crazy. Because I basically have to be there and I have to supervise them all the time. 
help me please. So therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, what would medicine do for the child? And we always have, we have to get beyond our concerns and fears that somehow the medicine is something that's evil, it's going to do bad things, because we heard that Johnny, when he was on the medicine, such and such happened. But you may not know the full particulars about that story. You have to remember that the stimulant medicines have been around for decades, absolute decades. The first stimulant uh, was used in the 1930s in that regard. One was introduced in the 1950s. So that they've been around for a long, long time. We've learned about side effects and things, and, and things of that nature. So you have to, again, to answer the question, if the child is symptomatic from the ADHD, if the ADHD is significantly interfering with functioning so that you're at risk for social failure, you're at risk for academic failure, you're at risk for physical injury, you should seriously consider the use of a medication if behavioral and educational strategies have not worked. Next. It's a team approach. Uh, it depends what the issues are with the ADHD. So for instance, a medical professional, both for guidance in general about ADHD, when people come to see me, one of the things that I think that I, I, I help them with is I refer them to resources such as the National Resource Center on ADHD, which you've been told about today. I refer them to good reading materials because people have to become informed consumers. But there's a medical professional, usually also to prescribe medication. There's a psychologist, counselor, or therapist to help either train the parents on how to teach the child how best to manage behaviors or to help the child work with issues or work with some of the coexisting conditions, such as mood problems or anxiety problems. There's, an edu there's educators and the whole educational team that's needed to be there in order to help the child succeed, succeed within the learning environment. If the child has coexisting problems with motor coordination, which occurs in about up to 50% of the population with ADHD, then you need a therapist to help them with their motor skills, an occupational therapist for fine motor, a physical therapist for gross motor skills in that regard. Uh, and you, you, uh, in some of the older populations, an ADHD coach, basically who's someone who can help with their lifestyles uh, uh, choices, what do I do in such and such a circumstance? How best do I organize myself? Those individuals can also be very helpful. So you've got to basically find the individuals who have to meet what the child's needs are. And how do you know what the needs are? You make a list. Here's where my child is having difficulties. Who can be the professional who can help me with those? So in other words, it's a team approach. It's not an isolated individual approach. Parents shouldn't have to feel that they're alone because they should have these resources available to them. And as I stated before, Chad and the NRC uh, are, are good resources to be available for people so that you know that you're not alone dealing with the ADHD. Next. Thank you. What's the difference in treatment for inattentive type versus hyperactive type children? There is no difference in treatment. Uh, when you actually look at what inattentive type and hyperactive type of ADHD are, you have to go back and look at how is ADHD diagnosed. ADHD is diagnosed by looking at two major categories 
that, that make up ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the inattention category and the hyperactive impulsive category. If, and there's, there are nine items in each group, if you have at least six of the nine items in the group, then you basically consider to have that group as part of your diagnostic uh, code, if you want to think of it that way. So if you have six of nine items or seven of nine items or eight or nine of nine items in both groups, it's known as ADHD combined type. If it's at least six items in the inattentive group, but you don't meet six, maybe you only have five or four in the hyperactive impulsive group, then it's called predominantly. Notice the word predominantly inattentive. And it's the same way it could be predominantly hyperactive impulsive. In fact, we know that the groups can change over time for the individual where you may look hyperact predominantly hyperactive impulsive as a preschooler, but by the time you're 10 years old, you've gotten the combined type. By the time you're 20 years old, you're predominantly inattentive type because that's the natural history of the disorder. Therefore, the manifestations uh, uh, depend on the time that you're checking it and the severity of the symptomatology that's present. Because of this, we're really talking about the same condition, just showing itself a little bit differently in, in individuals based on their age and based on their whole construct, their physical and genetic construct. Medications that are good for the inattentive type are good for the hyperactive impulsive type, are good for the combined type. So there really should be no major difference to which medication you choose. You have to choose what medicine will work best for the child. Because even though they may be listed as predominantly inattentive, I can almost guarantee you they're going to be a little bit fidgety. They're going to be a little bit impulsive. They may be a little bit, uh, they may have difficulties sometimes holding it together and not interrupting, but it's not to the level that, that people would classify it as, as significantly or severely abnormal. Next. Okay, we have time for one last question. How does medication assistance do a larger treatment Please. for ADHD? Medication is the best treatment you have for improving attention, improving impulsivity, and improving the motor overactivity or hyperactivity that we see in the population. But medication does not teach you how to learn. Medication does not teach you how to behave. I only wish it did, because if it did, all our problems would go away. You need to take advantage of that learned improvement in behavior to help the individual develop good learning skills, to develop good behavior skills, to develop good work ethics and good work skills. An example I give uh, people is children with, with ADHD are running a race, but all the other children are lined up at the starting line and they are 20 yards behind them. They're not gonna catch up in that race unless they have something to help them. And if you put them on medication, the medication may maybe move them up so they're only five yards behind them. But you know what? They still have to know, how do you run a race? How do I best do my exercises and all this other stuff that's there? It's not just changing the position. So you have to think of medicine as one component of a larger treatment plan that when all these are put together for the individual can be successful in helping them achieve the the functioning that they should achieve in their lives.
We want to thank you, Dr. Richmonson, for a wonderful presentation, and thank you to our participants for joining us today. Visit us at www.chad.org to experts to view and register for upcoming webinars. Thank you again for joining us.